You're listening to audio from the Village Church, a community that's formed by the gospel and sent on God's mission, gathering weekly in the heart of downtown Hamilton, Ohio. For more information about the village or to connect with us, you can find us online at myvillagechurch.com. Good morning. Hey all, Michael here, one of the pastors of the village. Thanks so much for hanging out with us. Just a quick note. I know things are difficult, and I know that as the days and and weeks and months go on in uh, kind of self-isolation and quarantine stuff, it's difficult. And so I hope that this time together serves you well. I know it serves me, and I love getting to see different faces. And man, I long for the day that we can come together and worship together as, as one body in spirit and flesh, and I hope you do as well. So we have a ton to get to today in Exodus 14, the whole chapter, uh, and so let's just jump in. There is a movie called The Matrix, and it's a trilogy uh, started in the late 90s, spilled over into the early 2000s, and whether you've seen that before or if, you, or if you've not seen that, uh, there's no way I could explain it to you because I, I don't really understand it myself. But the idea is... There's a lot going on that most people don't see uh, the reality of. There's this guy named Morpheus, and he knows kind of the ins and outs, and he knows what's going on. There's this guy named Neo, and he's kind of new to the Matrix and and understanding what is real. And so Morpheus is teaching Neo what's real, what is true. Excuse me. And and, and just kind of the idea that that, uh, whatever you thought was real man, those assumptions probably aren't quite accurate. Morpheus says to Neo at one point, he says this. He says, the matrix is everywhere. It is all around us, even now in this very room. You can see it when you look out your window or when you turn on your television. You can feel it when you go to work, when you go to church, when you pay your taxes. It is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. And Neo says, what truth? And Morpheus says that you are a slave, Neo. Like everyone else, you were born into bondage, into a prison that you cannot taste or see or touch, a prison for your mind. Now look, you may not realize this, uh, but you're not living in the matrix. That's not not what I was going to say. You may not realize this, but, but truth may not be what you think it is either. You too were born a slave. In the Bible, uh, through the Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Romans, in chapter 6, verse 16 and following, he, he helps us understand what, what I mean by that. He says, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? And then he gives two options. He says either sin, which leads to death, that's the, that's the result, that's the wage of, of sin, or obedience, which leads to righteousness, and which means a right, kind of right before God. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. Two options, slave to sin slave to righteousness. Those who are slaves to righteousness, you once walked in uh, as a slave to sin. Those are the only two options. Uh, and so some still walk in, uh, the, in slavery to sin, and, and others who, uh, who trust Jesus are free 
to walk in righteousness. To be a slave means that you are walking towards a path that leads to death. Uh, To be a slave to sin leads to death. To be a slave to righteousness means that you're walking on a path that leads to life and flourishing, even in this life, not only in the next. Because sin is rebellion against the origin of of what is good, and, and the origin of good is God. Because sin is rebellion against God, it dismisses God and it shows up in a million different ways on the surface, right? Um, but, but to be a slave to righteousness is to be liberated and to be freed to follow and to be freed to obey what is good, to obey God. Later on, uh, Neo, as he's kind of learning about this slavery and, and the matrix and all this stuff, he, he says, why, why are my eyes so... And, and Morpheus interrupts him. He says, because you've never used them before. And the reality is many of us walk around blind, not understanding that, that we are slaves to sin. But God's grace, it overwhelms us so that we might see. The problem is we don't always see. And some never do. And, and others, they lay aside, they, they, they cast off their lenses and, and they put back on the old lenses fighting for what they might call freedom because it's familiar. So, so we fight for uh, the, the, the life of sin that we once had because it's familiar. But really, it's a slavery which leads to death. So as we're looking at Exodus, and this is our 18th sermon in Exodus, we just have a few more until we'll take a, a long break uh, through this series, Captive Set Free. Today we see the apex of God's power in his rescue uh, for his people, for for all of God's people, up until the point where Jesus hangs on the cross. This chapter is the climax of God's uh, hand to rescue, to save his people. So there are many connections that we see in this to the the life that Jesus offers us. But, But about this passage, the Red Sea, there are more songs and more psalms and more references throughout the scriptures and, and in Jewish uh, kind of uh, history to the Red Sea than nearly every other aspect and act of God. It is his definitive rescue and redemption. And here's the thing, it, it's, it's brutal, which puts on display the links that God must go to to liberate his people from their cruel master. The big idea is is even when all seems lost, God saves his people by his great power according to his perfect plan. So uh, we're in Exodus 14, the whole chapter. And and the setup, there's so much here that we can't hit on. But but the setup goes like this. Uh, There's a a lot going on. Uh, They had left Egypt. God had uh, pulled his people out after generations of slavery and, and captivity uh, at the hand of Pharaoh and, and the Egyptians. He pulls the Hebrews out through a series of plagues and strikes against Pharaoh. And, and finally, Pharaoh says, all right, go, uh, get out of here. Uh, we don't want to see you again. And so they leave so that they might go worship God. Uh, that is the, the scene, but then uh, Pharaoh gets this idea to go after them. Uh, he regrets that, and, and he kind of binds them in, and then God delivers 
to save his people in some crazy miraculous ways. And just for those of you who kind of want to figure out the, the scene here, it's probably a couple weeks up to maybe like 25 days that this whole thing has kind of unfolded. So they've, they've probably been away for less than a month and, uh, and more than a few weeks. And so, uh, for you know, as you're trying to put together a timeline. So three points in this. Again, a lot to get through. The first one is this. God liberates with calculated precision. Okay, let's jump right in. Verse 1 in chapter 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of some places. And he says, You shall encamp facing it by the sea, for Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land, and the wickedness has shut them in. And I, and I'm sorry, and the wilderness has shut them in and I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. So that's kind of what's going on here. Turn around, uh, backpedal a little bit. Remember, they're following a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. Uh, and they're following Moses, who's kind of this intermediate between God and God's people. And so you just imagine that, that the cloud backtracks and Moses is saying, come on, guys. And, and they're kind of like, huh? Uh, this, this doesn't make any sense. But God tells us why he does this. He does this so that Pharaoh will think that you've lost your mind and he will try to attack you. And why would I want that to happen? Um, so that I will get my glory. We see this throughout the scriptures that God is about his own glory. We who live in light of him, who are saved by grace through faith in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, we too get to live for the glory of God. We're best that way. We are made to, to worship and to praise and to glorify him. But, but it might seem off-putting to, well, why would God be about his own glory? And I won't spend a ton of time here, but, but there is one who can seek his own glory because he isn't boasting falsely, right? God seeks his own glory. It isn't posturing when God works for his glory because he is the only one that isn't arrogant. He's not arrogant. He doesn't embellish. He doesn't exaggerate the numbers. He doesn't exaggerate his power or his strength. He is magnificent and he is good. God in three persons, uh, three persons each exalting the other from eternity past to eternity future. And so then we move on, and there's kind of this next chunk. And uh, um, when I was in college, uh, freshman year in college, Kim and I were living in Tennessee, and um, we had worked the summer before. We saved up some money. We were working. Uh, Kim was like working in the library a few hours a week. Other than that, we weren't working, and so we were kind of just living off of the money that we had saved in the summer. One weekend, we went with uh, with Kim's roommate, we went to the mall down in Chattanooga, and we were uh, we were enticed to buy some some Doc Martens. Each of us, right, three pairs of Doc Martens. The the shoe salesman, he was a young guy, he was pumped, right, because it made him made him some commission money. So so we get back to campus the next day at, at breakfast. We're talking about it. None of us wore them. The next day at lunch, we're like, yeah, man, gosh, you know, we probably spent, uh, you know. Uh, they were like a hundred and something dollars at, at that time. We probably spent a tenth of 
our money that we had to live on for nine months, you know, on a pair of shoes. And so we had buyer's remorse. And so we went back, uh, heads hung low, and we gave that guy his, uh, his commission back. And so we, we took those shoes back. Um, Pharaoh and the Egyptians, they don't have buyer's remorse. They have, they have seller's remorse. They, they find themselves regretting that they ever sent uh, the Hebrews away. Uh, I imagine that, that Pharaoh, he's making decisions. He lacked judgment in many ways. And so he says, fine, just get out of here. I can't take this anymore. But then he begins to think, gosh, this is going to impact our economy uh, because there are millions of Hebrews making bricks for us. Now we have to have our own people make bricks. How are we going to do that? And then he probably began to think, you know, was God really that powerful? Um, what's going on here? He began to think, what are people going to think when this, this huge tribe of Hebrews are wandering out? And, and when our enemies see them, are, go, are they going to think that, that they defeated us or that, that I'm weak? And so they begin to have this kind of remorse. And, and so he turns, uh, he, he makes a, a hard shift and he, he sends the cavalry all the king's horses and all the king's men. And he sends uh, uh, 600 chariots, which uh, just for context is way more than, than should have been sent in a normal military uh, kind of act in, in this context. And so, um, so they, they encamp around the Hebrews and, and they, they back them into an alley. I think of movies a lot when I'm looking at this and and you just think of a chase scene and, and a guy running and, and he runs into an alley and there's no way out. And he looks up and, you know, we got you. And so that's kind of the scene. There's, there's no way out. You imagine the, the music crescendos as, as the impending doom is there. And that's the way that, that as Moses writes this, he wants us to feel the weight that there was no escape for them. As, as this happens, there's probably a sweat on, on Moses's eyebrow and just fear in the, the lives of of the men, women, and children, uh, Jackie Chan, as as great of an escape artist as he is, he could not escape this alley, right? And so there's no hope. And then uh, I think of uh, movies like Ocean's Eleven or, or or the Bourne series, where you have this mastermind of details, and you just have this the the good guys are just one step ahead of the bad guys, and it's it's a complex web of plans. That's what's happening here. There's a mastermind of details. We see God's hand working in the details of life and liberation. And to be clear, he does not save his people by accident. He, he didn't do that here. He, he does not do that in our life in Christ. He does not leave salvation to chance. And make no mistake at all, God is the author of salvation, the scriptures sing this praise time and time again. That's true for the Hebrews. That's true for the masses. And listen, that's true for me. And that's true for you. I don't know about you, but, but it's easy to think sometimes that God kind of sets things in motion and then he just backs off, you know, uh, and he just lets things go. And, and one day he'll come back and he'll fix it all again. And on one hand, I do think that God gives an incredible amount of freedom in the way that we live our lives. He, he does give us an incredible amount of freedom in the decisions that we make. Uh, as the proverb, uh, the, the proverb tells us in, in 1921, it says, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, 
And so that affirms that truth that, that man makes plans and that is okay. And we get to follow in those plans and we get to, to, to act according to those things. We get to, to set our course as we may. But on the other hand, God presses all things forward, right? He presses all things forward. Everything is subject to the plans of God. In the second half of that proverb, it says this, Many are the plans in the mind of man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. God is not void of strategy, right? He is strategic in all that he does, and that doesn't mean that he asks for our opinion, now, now you can be upset about that, and and you can uh, you can consider that that God thinks and He acts, and and He knows He's privy to information that you're not uh, that you don't know, or you can rest in that, and you can follow Him because He alone is God. I know that there are many people who look at um, the government, and, and in the U.S. we look at the federal government or even the state government, the local government, like even, uh, even your work. And, and, and you know that there are meetings maybe uh, higher than you that are happening. And, and what we do is, is we assume and we speculate that, that they uh, know something that we don't. And, and therefore, they are working uh, for themselves against us, right? Um, and look, this is not a political statement. I'm not making a timely uh, political statement. You can think whatever you want to think about any of that stuff. But, but here's the thing. We, th- this is not a political statement. It's a theological statement. We do this because we know that humanity is corrupt. We know that the hearts of man, the reality is we know that they are slaves to sin. We know that they seek themselves, that they, they build themselves up. And and so humanity is corrupt. But to think that God is somehow undermining or he's leading you to miss out on the fullness of life, as maybe the Egyptians might have thought in this moment, uh, because he doesn't reveal every detail of, of all the things for all time or even every detail about you. He knows you better than you do. I promise you that. Okay. Um, and so when we, when we ascribe this, uh, this understanding humanity is corrupt, corrupt government and, and uh, employers or, or whatever, they know something that we don't and that means it's our, at our expense. When we apply that to God, it is to bite the same fruit that Adam and Eve bit when they failed to trust God in the garden and they were duped by the serpent. It's the same thing. It's to mistrust that, that God does not have our best interest in mind. And hear me, God is about his people and he is about his glory and he's about his people living for his glory because that's how we were designed to live. That's how we flourish together in community. That's how we will flourish to the ends of this earth in the new heavens and the new earth for all of eternity. Um, so God, he led the Hebrews in a way that would position them exactly where they needed to be. That was the point to entice Pharaoh and, and his spies or, or however he was kind of looking at the Hebrews and figuring out what they were doing, to entice them to think that they had no clue what they were doing, that they were wandering about. Uh, as, as one translation says, 
The wilderness hath shut them in. That's what Pharaoh sees. That's what God wanted them to see. And the final destruction of Israel's enemy was calculated. And I am confident that God has been at work in your life. And there are times when it didn't make sense. That might be right now. That you might consider that God's at work. And and you might just say, this doesn't make sense to me what God is up to. That is okay. We get to... uh, We must know that it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. And we must know that he stands against the hard-hearted opposer, but he delights in the humble who turns toward him. So, so we get to do, uh, what we get to do is we get to submit to God. We get to submit to God alone, who is God. There is only one. And we get to trust his calculated plan to move, and to rescue. God works with calculated precision. The second thing is is this. God's freedom comes at a cost. I was talking to a friend this week. Maybe you know him. uh, Josh Santos. Hey, Josh. What up? Hey, Kristen. Hey, Ezra. What up? Um, so, So, and he said this. He said, everyone wants to lead themselves but once they get the chance to, they're pretty bad at it, right? Everyone wants to lead themselves, but once they, get, once they get the chance to, they're pretty bad at it. Unlike us, the upside that, that Egypt had for the hearts of Israel was that they could see their enemy. They could see what and who they were slave to, and that still didn't allow their hearts to find the gift of freedom a worthwhile gift. Let's read on in, in verse 11. Uh, well, I'll start in verse 10. When, when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. Again, we see this, this theme of fear show up all throughout this stuff. They feared Egypt more than they feared God. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt? that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. See, they're wanting slavery for themselves. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to, and to die. Uh, I'm sorry. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, and this is like a faith-filled, faith-fueled response. He says, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Gosh, Fear not, he says, relax. And that's not, I I don't think that is a rebuke. I think when he says don't fear, that's that's a comfort for them to rest in the Lord's work, right? What they were slave to, Pharaoh and Egypt, was a better option for them than the unknown of following God wherever he leads. Now, 
they say that. They say that out loud. But, but aren't each of our beliefs uh, even better identified by what we do than what we say? So you might say, I would never say that. And maybe that's true, but you might live as if that were true. Not only does God save his people from the outside and from the, the enemy uh, without the enemy uh, around them, but time and time again, in, in fact, it is the nature in which he saves. He saves us from ourselves. Imagine the scene, enslaved, right, uh, by a violent tyrant nation and a, uh, relatively just kind of a, a, a psycho, frantic uh, pharaoh. The demand was high. Uh, when they were in Egypt, they were wrung of their identity and they became, uh, their identity was, was servant to, to servant and that was it. They're freed in a visibly miraculous way by God's leadership through the plagues, through Moses' leadership. They're, they're being guided by a pillar of cloud and by a pillar of fire to lead. And they're followed. Uh, that, that leadership, that cloud and, and Moses to a dead-end alley. Understandably, all hope seems lost. They can trust God. And, and see that he has been faith, nothing but faithful to this point, or they can blame and they complain. Uh, they choose the latter. They forsake trust, and they blame and they complain. So, so what about you? How do you respond in situations like this? Um, a couple of things. They were mindful of what they were giving up. Um, they knew what they were leaving I remember when I was like considering following Jesus and I remember looking at my life and I remember saying out loud and it was uh, uh, probably a brand of theology that I was uh, looking at things through that, that I wouldn't say that these would be the most foundational questions that I would ask today. But, but I remember thinking, man, I'm going to have to give up listening to the music that I listen to. Like, like I thought like, uh, f- for me, that was the thing that I was like worried about. I'm, I'm probably going to have to like, uh, use different words than I use in my normal life. That's that's what I thought. Man, now I know that that what God was leading me to was so much greater than that, and and He un, undid me in much greater ways. Then the second thing is is there's pressure, uh, the the pressure that that brings the worst out in them. It brings the worst out in us. Um, pressure brings the worst to the surface, and so I think of just a real practical example of like running late. When we run late, um, I'll speak for myself, I have very little patience. If someone else is making me late, someone else in my household is making me late to my thing, then man, it, uh, uh, it causes me to blame and complain. So we can do that or we can, we can not. All this, it points us to another time when, all, uh, when, when hopes were high but in a matter of moments, all seemed lost. Jesus, he said he was the way to life and to freedom. And, and people uprooted their lives and they followed him. His disciples did. Um, and they lived with him for, for several years towards the end of his life. And then Jesus died. Jesus died. He died on the cross. They watched him die. And they thought, how can this be the king how can this be God? How can this be the one who forgives sin, forgives sins? How can this be the one worthy of me uprooting my life, the life that I had, 
and following Him to a new life. What a disappointment. And on one hand, why can't you just trust God and follow Him? Why couldn't Israel do that? They'd seen Him act uh, time and time again. Why couldn't the disciples do that? They'd seen the miracles that Jesus had performed. They'd seen all of that stuff. They heard Him. They even heard Him tell that He was going to have to die. But they, they just didn't believe it. The reality is God prevails against Egypt to save His people. And God prevails against death to give life. God saves. Sometimes I forget that. Like, it's been helpful for me this week to sit in this reality that, that God saves. We never get to, to move past that. And not, He doesn't just save universally. He saves people, sure. He, he saves His people for His own glory, but He saves personally. He has done that for many who are listening to me right now. And look, if He's not done that, if you've never come to the end of yourself, where you say, you know what, I want to forsake my sin I want to be forgiven for my sin and I want to no longer live for my own glory but I want to live for God's glory here and now and forever. And the only way that we can do that is to trust Jesus that he forget, that, that uh, his death on the cross, him dying a sinner allows us to be forgiven for our sin. Man, he will still do that. God saves universally. He saves personally and I don't mean he saves everyone in the universe but but on the masses scale he saves, but he saves us and he would desire to save you even today. Um, as an activity and, and maybe a kind of an application, I know some of you journal, some of you don't, um, consider a couple things and maybe it's just sitting on the porch in prayer uh, later tonight or tomorrow morning or, or maybe it's writing in a journal, consider a couple questions. One is this, what has God saved me from? Write it down. Chase it out. Follow your life out if God had never intervened and opened your eyes so that you might see that you are a slave to sin. Follow it down. See what path that would have led you on. Um, and the second thing is, as I continue to follow where he leads, what would God continue to desire to save me from? Like the reality is, sin is at hand, right? It, it's, it's close behind and and we have an enemy who, who seeks to, to destroy us. So what we get to do is we get to consider where we might be tempted and, and what sin we might be enticed by. And we get to remember that God wants to save us from that as well. And then, uh, and then man, just write a, a prayer of thanks. Just thank God for what he saved you from, what he desires to continue to save you from, and, and that he might continue to do that. The reality is, though, um, sometimes that salvation isn't as welcomed as we might think and, and certainly not as welcomed as it should be. Jesus, he challenges his followers. He says, follow me, but before you do that, count the cost. We can't follow God without counting the cost. We can't follow God and also rule and reign in our own way. We can't continue to be God and, and, and follow God at the same time. So we position our hearts to follow. And, and then we no longer get to pick and choose what part of the scriptures that we follow. But we get to, we get to walk in a way uh, that is led by God and His Word. There's this theme in the scriptures. 
And, and it goes like this. It's, it's the old man is dead and the new man has come. And, and that's a picture of the life that we once lived and the life that we live in Christ now. Um, the old man, he, he doesn't die easy. The battle is to believe that, that we are being saved for something that is better than what we are being saved from. That's the challenge that, that the Hebrews are facing in this moment. That God is a better king than any other throughout any time for any reason for all of creation or he isn't. We see Israel, they seem to reject this when, uh, when the going gets tough. They want to revert back. They long for the good old days of when they were slaves to Egypt. And we might long for the good old days when we were slaves to our sin. For those who have been rescued, the old man is dead. Uh, he died when you put your faith into a dead Jesus on the cross. He died by faith. And he dies, that old man dies every time we believe and we align our hearts to take up our cross. The new man, he lives by faith, but it's as if he is reaching from the grave to, to try to capture us, our hearts, our mind, our life, and our freedom. So Moses' response, it demonstrates a true transformation in the life of Moses from the shaky, weak, faithless Mo of old. The reality is sin wants to Sin wants you slave to its demand. Don't fall for it. Do not fall for that. So, so as John Owen says, we be killing sin lest it be killing us. So the call seems to, to, uh, to be for us to, to rise up, to take arms, to fight against our sin. And we do fight. And we must wage war moment by moment, day by day. But the war is, is not like you think that it is. The war is against doubt and disbelief because, as Moses says, the Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. Fear not. Be silent. Let the victory that God secures for us lead us to victory. Do you believe that? Because the Lord is near. And, and this is point three. And God saves by his mighty hand. Verse 15, the Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward, lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. That's crazy. That doesn't make any sense. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I've gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. God saves by his mighty hand. God is putting his devotion and his power on display. And look, if you're just tuning in, maybe for the first time in this series, what happens, it sounds brutal. And if you've been tracking with us for a while, this still sounds brutal. It, it is brutal. Make no mistake that sin is deadly. And, and I will not belabor this third point that God saves by his mighty hand. 
But, but this is a rescue and a tale of deadly peril. Sin brings forth death every single time to every single one. Its natural result is destruction. Uh, the ruler of sin is, is Satan and he, he aims to steal and kill and destroy. That's Satan's anthem. That is the power of darkness at work against us. Death is, in, uh, is imminent. The only escape is to trust one to stand in the gap between your enemy and you. And maybe you think yourself brave and you think, man, I would volunteer as tribute for the ones that I love to stand in the gap. But, but you forget you aren't free to volunteer because you have your own debt to pay. Your debt and your wage is, is death because of the sin that you've uh, leveraged in your rebellion against God. And, and here's the other thing, that, that we're not asking one to, to just save his friends, but there is one who died, who stood in the gap, that he might save his enemies as well. There is one who can touch the heavens by his relationship with God in perfect righteousness, who, who being God took the form of a man. He also touches humanity in his incarnation and his flesh. And his name is Jesus. Go back to Morpheus and Neo for a second. Morpheus says to Neo, um, there are these agents and they're coming in and they're opposing the, the good guys for all intents and purposes. And, uh, and he says, sooner or later, someone is going to have to fight them. Every single man or woman who has stood their ground, everyone who has fought them has died. But where they have failed, Neo, you will succeed. And what we find out is Neo is the one. He is the rescuer. And we get to catch a glimpse of, of the real one, Jesus, and his future work as we conclude this text. And it, and it goes like, this, then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. What we see is, is that God stands in the gap between our enemy and ourselves. That's what Jesus does. And then it was, as we read on, it's just as God described that, that uh, Moses holds up a staff and the waters part and, 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 it's, and it's not this uh, immediate thing. There are potentially millions of people here and, and the Hebrews, they follow along and, and they walk on dry land uh, as, as the east wind and the west wind holds the waters up and they, they walk through and, and Pharaoh looks and he says after them he goes after them uh, and that um, God crashes the water down and it, and it destroys the enemy and, and just before that we see that the, that the uh, Egyptians they, they go into a panic and, and their, uh, their wheels of their chariots get clogged and, and they're saying get out of here let us flee from Israel for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand. And the sea fell upon them and the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh. 
uh, that followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel, they walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians so that the people feared the Lord. Right? See how their fear shift when they see God's power and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. At the Red Sea, it's God's power over creation that crushes his enemy, even in the fine-tuning of this scene at the cross. It's God's power to humbly walk to death for charges not his own. What a great God we serve. So let us believe this even when all seems lost. God saves his people by his great power according to his perfect plan. And, and let that belief sp uh, spur us to reflect upon that. So we'll throw some, some questions on the screen that we might reflect, repent, and respond. And I invite you to continue reflecting and repenting and responding as we sing together. See you soon.